This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio with this special show with Bloomsbury Education, talking all things writing and the writing book hosted by Tom Hopkinsburg with Zoe and Tim Paranor. I'm now going to pass over to Tom to host the show. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. It's a very special edition of Teachers Talk Radio tonight because we are going to be talking all about the writing book published by Bloomsbury Education and is co-authored by Zoe and Tim Paramore, who I can hear in the background now. Very good evening, and how are you doing? Um, yeah, we're all right. Lovely. How's your year been? Um, intense, I yeah, think. Pretty busy, but productive. We're currently doing the exact same job, basically, aren't we, in, in different schools? Yeah. So um, that, that sort of, well, firstly makes us real fun at parties, but yeah, means that there's a lot of overlap in what we do, and that has its pros and cons, probably. Mm. So you met, you met 13 years ago, am I right? Um, while working in the same school, and we you were indeed. married in 2016. Yeah, absolutely. We met, um, yeah, Tim interviewed me for my first ever job when I was in NQT, and he didn't give me the job. So I was the most junior person on that panel, in my defence. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm over it. I'm so over it. I'm totally over it. Um, and so, yeah, you're now senior leaders at different schools. So yeah. um, it does, how much literacy does that involve, or is it, or is it another responsibility well at my school i'm still responsible um, for for english and uh you know i still teach a bit of english you know it's something that's very close to my heart so it's not something that i've uh, i've moved away from Uh, i'm the academic deputy so it's sort of under my umbrella we do have a head of english as well so it's not it's not my specific remit it's something i sort of oversee whereas i was previously the head of english there so i've sort of Mm -hmm. moved on from that now but something that still care a lot about Absolutely, and we should because literacy is so important. It's the building block um, for all of our students in order to make meaning across the curriculum in all of their subjects. And a very good evening to our listeners who have joined us on Twitter Spaces so far. We have Nayland Natter. So good evening. We have M. We have James Radburn, um, who's going to be producing this into a podcast for everyone. We've got Sam Dickinson. We have got David. And we have got Gamzee as well. Um, So. The writing book, Zoe and Tim, it's not your first book. Um, you wrote the grammar book. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So you wrote the grammar book, obviously a very good book. So why, why the writing book? Well, the grammar book was designed to address nuts and bolts issues about writing, Those, especially in the wake of the, um, the bag test coming in in year six, um, about a decade ago. A lot of teachers felt a bit intimidated by a lot of the content, and it was really designed just to make sure that they felt equipped and empowered to deliver um, the curriculum when it came to that. But as we were writing, we realised all sorts of wider issues were coming up about how do we craft elegant sentences? How do we structure our writing? How do we keep it concise? In short, how do we make it sound good? And we actually decided that was perhaps an even more interesting book and the book we really wanted to write. So um, that's kind of where it came from, really. One came out of the other. Mm-hmm. Thank you. and. So do you think it's important then to read a grammar book before you read before we read the writing? I mean, I don't think even our, our families have, have read either cover to cover. So I don't think anyone needs to do that. That would be excessive. Um, both are meant. If, if you're interested enough to read it cover to cover, you can. 
but both are meant to be tools that you can pick up, find the area of either grammar or writing you want to sort of work on, you want resources for, and you can dip into as you need it. I think it, there's no need to sort of read one first. I think, would you agree? Yeah. I think they work together though. So, yeah. you know, very often, um, you know, in the writing book, there might be something where we'll allude to a point about grammar and say, and, you know, there is, there's further information about this in the grammar book. Yeah. So they are designed to be companions, work alongside one another. Mm-hmm. And I know you do mention some grammatical conventions, yeah. but what, in the writing book. But what I've had, especially as a secondary teacher who's not so, um, you know, into sort of primary nuts and bolts um, of Key Stage 2, is actually it's very accessible. You make it very clear what you're talking about. And yeah, it demystifies um, a lot of the grammar process and the writing process as well. And I should point out to um, our listeners tonight that I have read the writing book cover to cover. Um, and <laughs> the first one. It's a, great, it's, a great, it's a great read. It's an engrossing read. And I think uh, you talk about being able to dip in and out. And yeah. I think you definitely do that with the writing book. Um, but actually, it's got a logical sequence and because sequencing is all the rage it's been all the rage under the education inspection framework um and actually i think sequencing it's really logical and how you sort of go from your three fundamental principles which we're going to um delve into and then you go into sort of arranging the writing whether you're talking about um direct speech or descriptive language and the nouns versus adjectives and then actually writing it um Weirdly, not starting with a beginning, but sort of think about drafting, planning, and editing, um, and then thinking about beginnings and endings. So it's really logically structured, and so you can definitely read it cover to cover, but you can dip in and yeah. out as well. Um, who do you have? Who do you have to thank for oh. the book? Obviously, Bloomsbury. What helped did Bloomsbury? But who else? Well, absolutely, and individuals at Bloomsbury. So um, Hannah Marston was the editor that took this book on. We first sort of pitched it to her. As a, as, and she'd worked with us on the grammar book. So she was the person that got it into sort of action, I guess. Absolutely. And then um, Emily Badger, although I think she's now Emily Evans, yeah, um, took over. And she had a really hard job, but she did so well because she came in sort of halfway through the project and had to immediately sort of get to grips with it and get her head around it. And she did that amazingly. And she was the person that took the manuscript and edited it and got it into the book that we're now holding. So, yeah, she, she's brilliant. But a lot of these ideas are, you know, we don't work in a vacuum. These have all been developed over, we've well, been teaching, what, 15? Almost 20 years now. 20 years, yeah. Teaching's a team sport. And ultimately, you know, we learn to do what we do as part of teams and with all the colleagues we've worked with over yeah. the years. So we, everything that, um, any wisdom we've um, accrued, we've accrued alongside those people. And obviously the pupils have had to endure all the trial and error over the years <laughs> as we sort of honed our craft, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be writing a little something for Bloomsbury soon, okay. but um, I will um, tell you more. I'll tell, say about the future show. It's not a day. Um, this is about the writing book. Um, now, I want to go to one of your quotes. Hmm. Uh, it can be tempting to think that all our pupils must eventually learn to write through osmosis, but if we simply expose them to enough examples of competent writing, they will learn to pick up the tricks of the trade without effort. It's a quote from your introduction, mm-hmm. and this idea is that the idea of pupils eventually learning to write through osmosis. Why is this such a flawed assumption in your view? Do you well, want to go with this? We've talked about this. Yeah. So some children can learn to write just through os- osmosis. Um, probably very few. But it's probably not that many. Um, and it's too important a skill to leave to chance. 
Um, and I think very often those children who are going to struggle to learn through osmosis most are perhaps most likely to be those where there are additional barriers, like, for example, having English as an additional language, um, or perhaps children where there isn't much of a reading culture at home. And those are exactly the children we need to be trying our hardest to reach. The other thing, I think, is, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, a lot of adults will say to you, oh, I learned to read by osmosis. It never did me any harm. My writing was great. And then you look at their writing and you actually think maybe there are some gaps that they, they're not quite aware of, perhaps because they're, they're, the process they went through did leave it entirely to osmosis. I think it is important to draw children's attention directly to some of the things that makes writing, as I say, sound good, makes it effective, makes it um, you know, something that someone wants to read and it fizzes on the page a bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, I've been doing the NPQ for the and that idea of actually you can look at the end product and think, oh my word, this is really good writing, but then sort of think, well, how on earth do you get to that? And thinking about yeah. the moves that matter and the tools of the trade and actually how to, you know, going down to the word level as you do in the book and um, the sentence level is really important as well. So when we look at the structure of the book, um, it's not divided up by text type, it's not no. divided up by genre, because you say it encourages the wrong things. Yeah. Um, what things are they then? They're wrong things. It almost gets too granular. You sort of end up, if you if you focus too much on a genre or a text type, what you tend to fall foul of is um, come up with a list of criteria. And that there's nothing wrong with that as a starting point. I think when you're teaching children about those things in your classrooms, it's, I'm not saying it's a completely wrong thing to do. But writing is so much more than a list of success criteria and the risk you have when you're like, we're going to look at how to write a non-chronological report or we're going to look at how to write, I don't know, a short story, is you sometimes miss the overarching conventions that you need to think about and the end point in mind when you, when you start. I think the other thing is um, a lot of the best examples of writing in any given genre are those that are genre-busting. They're the ones that defy the conventions of the genre, that break the rules of that genre. They're often the ones that we remember and say that's a really great example of, of writing. And I think the trouble with having lists of checklists for particular genres is you end up encouraging cliches, encouraging formulaic writing yeah. that actually isn't going to entertain or uh, engage or interest a reader. It's actually going to do completely the opposite. And that's sort of another thing that triggered us sort of writing this book is that we, we have children and we all have them in our class who can tick off every item on that success criteria they're doing all of that right it's grammatically correct but it's still just not very interesting writing it's not very good writing you, you wouldn't pick it up and be engaged by it and want to read this piece of writing and that's the problem we were trying to address so i'm not i wouldn't say this is a book that would get children writing from the beginning you know you need to have a sort of basic level of proficiency but it's like once they've got that how do you get them writing well i think is it's that next step definitely i mean it seems to be a book for key key stage two predominantly yeah, and that does seem yeah. to be target um there's a lot as well for lower key stage three and certainly perhaps even up to eight and nine and actually thinking about some of the more sort of a wider general trends and themes that you address could definitely be the key stage one as well but certainly key stage two does appear to be the target yeah. um audience um here and actually talking about you know what you were just talking about there i remember looking at a really good example in uh, about persuasive writing and how you gave an example i'm going to try and find it with my copy here um and this is a bit where i'm now going to add the lib um where basically if you give a checklist of ah here we go yeah i've got it um so if you give a checklist of 
the features of persuasive writing. Um, and the example you give is when the head teacher sends you the following email and says, Dear such such, I think it's quite obvious that you need a pay cut, don't you? My first reason for saying this is we need to save money at the moment. Only a complete idiot would fail to see the need to cut back. Do you want the school to run out of money completely? My second reason for saying this is we need to buy more playground equipment. Do you want the children to be bored at lunchtime? In conclusion, I think you need a pay cut. I'm sure you will see that I am right. Yours sincerely, the head teacher. And it's got lots of different features of persuasive writing. Um, and you say perhaps you're ready to march to school tomorrow and demand a pay cut from the head, or perhaps you're not feeling remotely persuaded. More likely, you'd be utterly insulted and outraged to receive this email. Um, and yeah, I think the points you've made there about sort of you can chuck in all the features of persuasive writing, but actually going to that genre, sort of genre by genre approach, does encourage the wrong things. So let's talk about how you actually do structure the book. So the first part of your book is all about the power of writing. And you have three fundamental principles, which is the awareness of reader, um, the crafting of individual sentences, and the succinctness and actually um, being sometimes brief is best. Was it difficult to think of those three fundamental principles or were they always clear in your mind from the very beginning? Um, yeah, a lot of this came out of a um, some work I did with a year six class where I tried to basically just give them a list of 10 top tips for improving their writing that they could um, stick into their books and say not a list of success criteria for an individual piece of writing, just a list of general sage wisdom and advice. And these were the three, three of those pieces of advice that I felt were just so important, were focusing on those, um, those individual sentences, thinking about um, keeping it succinct, and um, then also just making sure you're aware of your audience. That third one, which is the first um, one that we mentioned in the book, I believe, that's the key to it all. Writing's about empathy. It's about being aware that you're trying to reach someone else. It's there to be read. Um, and so I think that was, that was our starting point, really, was, was that these, these are the building blocks of, of writing so, uh, something that someone else is actually going to want to read. Anything you want to add to that one, Zoe? Um, no, I, no, it wasn't. That's it. It did it come from this document that Tim Tim kind of came up with, and originally we were going to like base the book exactly onto that, and then it sort of evolved as we discussed it. So those were the three we sort of hit upon. But I think it just came about from a lot of discussion. These are the sorts of things. I mean, I'm I'm sure all couples do, right? All couples sit and talk about what makes a good piece of writing over their evenings. <laughs> um, but it just came about from a lot of time and discussion about about this and what we wanted to focus on and what we thought i don't know three key principles that covered all the other things we then talk about so no i, no, I don't have anything more useful to add to it actually <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's all right um so in each chapter um you discuss why why it matters and yeah. why that's important you discuss then how to do it and some of the challenges that you face and then very nice summary at the end and where next off into the next chapter yeah. which is another part of the book um the thing which interests me um, and will interest the listeners is the resources and the model text, which I find, find really, really interesting. And I think the key thing is um, you can, whenever you, those of you who've got a copy uh, who are listening will notice there's a little logo in the book. It is a, I'm going to try and find it. I think it's a mouse. I believe it's a computer mouse. mouse there yeah. we go, a computer mouse. Yeah. Oh my God. I, had, I had mouse written in my notes. <laughs> I was thinking it wasn't an animal, was it? Um, 
But if you see the mouse logo in the book, uh, Computer Mouse, you can get resources then from the Bloomsbury Education website, um, which you can get at bloomsbury.pub forward slash the hyphen writing hyphen book. Um, What sort of resources can you get from that website then? So the vast majority of the model texts that are in the book, and I think some of them are, I think there's one resource actually that was too long to publish in the book, wasn't there? There was the story that we put, and that's only available online. Um, because I think we use that as an example of foreshadowing. It might have been an example of a few conventions. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, obviously, absolute best practice is we all write our own model text ourselves. And it is a useful thing to do, to go through the process. And you'll become very aware of the steps you're taking to create that piece of writing. But sometimes you just need something that's good enough and ready to go. And, and, and teachers and, can be sometimes a little bit busy. Just sometimes. You know. <laughs> um, so we're hoping that we've taken out a bit of the work there. and. Some of these are ones that we wrote specifically for the book. Some of these are ones that we've had for years that we've written over yeah, the last decade or so or two decades and used with, with our pupils. So, yeah, that was, that was some of the, one of the most fun I think we had. I don't know. It's not the most fun thing putting together a bit like this, but that was a really good fun bit. The, the model text, they're good. I think we've both always enjoyed doing, producing model writing ourselves when we've been teaching. And obviously it's not something you've always got the time um, no. to give to in the way you'd want. But um, I think it's why we wanted to try and, you know, make the time when we were putting this book together to provide some examples for other people that they can, of course, always adapt or edit to suit their own purposes and suit the classes they've got. Definitely. And I think modelling writing is really important, um, you know, at all levels. So from my perspective as a secondary history teacher, when I'm teaching my A-level classes, I will um, sometimes, if they're doing a timed assessment or a timed essay i will try and write it at the same time as them and then i'll show it under the visualizer once we're done and we te- either um, toast it or roast it um, <laughs> is how we do. um now let's delve into the power of writing then so you say that good writing is writing that has the desired effect on the reader um now if you anybody here who's key stage four English and English literature, English language, and has read the phrase, it makes the reader want to read on a hundred thousand times. <laughs> Let's forget about that. How can pupils achieve their desired effect? I know that's a very broad question, so feel free to break it down as much as you like. How how can pupils achieve that desired effect? The first step is knowing what effect you want to have. That's the the clear end in mind. So, what are you writing this for? And I think sometimes purpose gets overlooked and that can often happen if you're doing genre-based or text type-based teaching I suppose because you're like well you're writing a chronological report because we've been learning about how to write one um so I think that's the first step yeah you you need and then I think it's about um making sure that they do actually as often as possible have an audience that they're writing for even if it's just the person sitting next to them um and it's making sure that they are they're always focused on how am I going to um, you know, make some sort of change happen in that other person's mind, whether it's they're going to feel amused or frightened if it's a scary story, or they're going to feel they know something they didn't know before, or they're going to feel their point of view on something has changed. You've just got to make sure they're, they're really familiar with those range of possible effects you may want to achieve, and then work with other people and openly discuss the writing they've produced um, to, to explore how effective, effectively they've been able to do that. And so when, when our pupils are writing, you know, whether that's key stage one, key stage two, key stage three, how important is it then to actually 
present it to somebody to be read, whether that's peer assessment or whether that's to, you know, do you, I'm completely out of the loop with crime here, I'm afraid, as a secondary teacher. When persuasive writing happens at Key Stage 2, do those, does that persuasive writing get sent on to the intended audience? I've no idea. I think we certainly do a bit of that in my school. We write to um, Tulip Sadiq, who's the MP for the school in my catchment area, or the catchment area. Um, I think if you can find a real, or I've put real in air quotes, their audience to give it genuine purpose, then all the better. But if not, then take it to another class and try and persuade them that we should extend break time or whatever, but like find a purpose that matters to them. Yeah, I think it's a key um, part of what we're saying is that that's a part of the process we want to try and avoid skipping. You know, it is, um, it's the point where the writing actually, uh, you know, lives or dies is as it landed on the person it was supposed to land on in the way it was supposed to land. Um, and it's a process that we often think, well, actually, that's not so important. They finished the task. Let's move on to the next thing. But it's something we really believe you should make time for. Yeah, I heartily agree with that. So you've gotten that key idea that your writing needs to be aware of its audience and you need to be basically creating a desired effect on the reader, whatever that effect may be. Um, if we go down on a more granular sense then, from the big picture of audience down to sort of crafting those individual sentences and the sentence level instruction, which has taken, you know, which has become much more popular, I think, over the last two or yeah. three years um, with multiple books. Um, what is a good sentence? Um, well, there's no one answer to that. Um, say we we talk about trying to make sure that your individual sentences sound good that someone will read it and think that that, that they um they read it and they understand it i think it's clear that's got to be part of it it's um there's actually no doubt about what the sentence is saying it's unambiguous um but as we say in the book there are certain little things that will make it an easier sentence to read or make it less effortful for the reader to actually get through it so little things like making sure the subject of your sentence near the start, making sure the subject of the sentence and the main verb aren't too far apart. These are subtle little things that, um, you know, if you're not that au fait with grammar, you might struggle to picture what exactly we're saying for a moment. But I think when you see the examples in the book, the book you'll see, oh yeah, that does, that is something that makes a difference. That is quite an easy thing to, um, to explain once you've got those basic grammatical concepts down. So I think there are, there are several things, but really if there's one thing, it probably is about making it, a simple task for the reader to read the sentence, it's not a, an ordeal. It's not, um, doesn't require huge amounts of effort to get to the end of the sentence. They write what's it actually getting at. It jumps out at you and you know exactly what's being said. I think it's why for a long time we've felt this debate about grammar somehow standing in the way of creativity or good writing or creative writing is, is, is so ridiculous because actually it doesn't take a lot of explaining break down what makes a clear sentence. As you said, if you could explain what a subject is, explain what a verb is, if, if your class know that, then all you're doing there is equipping them with another tool to improve their sentence and improve their writing. And so that's what we really hope that we achieve with this book is obviously we are big fans of grammar, but we've often struggled with how sort of polarised that debate's become. That you're either pro the fronted verb and I think it's the best thing ever, it's just a tool, or yeah, you don't want any grammar taught and you just want them to learn through osmosis and have lots of lovely creative ideas and obviously most teachers fall somewhere in the middle I think. Yes eventually we will come on to the front of course, of course. I hope I used it correctly there. Um, <laughs> you did, now, 
it's astonishing. Uh, <laughs> uh, no idea what a front adverbial was really. Um, we don't we don't pay any attention to even they come up in year seven and the kids know what a front adverbial is or it's most of them do, and yet we don't. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. And Miss Gibbons has said, and I've invited her to speak if you want to mm. talk more about this. Well, um, she said we honestly don't do enough editing and reviewing at secondary. Absolutely correct, there, Miss Gibbons. Um, as a secondary teacher, we just have. We have a packed, jam-packed curriculum, whether it's key stage three or key stage four. And it's just, as Tim was saying earlier, it's, you do one thing, now let's get on to the next. And there's not enough time to yeah. actually pause and reflect and review and re-edit, redraft. And if it is, it's often, I mean, hopefully it's died of death, but the triple marking bonanza mm-hmm. of teacher responds to the student's writing and then the student responds to the teacher's <laughs> writing and maybe the teacher will stamp it or sign it, or take it <laughs> off. they've responded to the student's response to the teacher's response <laughs> to the nausea. Um, but yeah I think this is absolutely spot on there there is not enough time in the second yeah. um, for editing and reviewing um, is there anything you wanted to add to that Zoe? I think it's one of the biggest, I think another sort of step for us was as we wrote our own books and went through the writing process as adults and went through the editing process as adults we realized how the majority of putting together a book is editing so most of your time you get your first draft down and it's raw and clunky and yeah but it's down and you've got your word count then the really really hard bit comes in and so it, that became the more important stage for us i think when we were writing we we're like well if this is true for adults then that must also be true for children. And I think part of the barrier for that is a physical one that we get to into this in exercise books. And we, you know, would never be able to do that if we had to edit everything we wrote by hand. We do it all on computer. But and I it, don't think you have to have uh, written a book to understand that process as an adult. No. Anyone at work who sends an email that's about a slightly sensitive topic knows what it's like to agonize over every word, go back and change and reword sentences, subtly alter the word order to try and make a particular sentence sound a bit more assertive or less assertive, um, you know, a bit more direct or less direct. And that's what writing is. That's not a sort of an extra bit we do at the end. That is it. That's the process. That's how you um, you, you, you go from a, something that's, you know, barely even going to achieve the job you're trying to achieve to something that's really well written. And yet, partly because so much of what children do in class is still handwritten, it's almost like we're encouraging them to adopt a completely different process where they write down the first thing that comes to their head. And apart from perhaps the, a couple of little words being edited here and there, that's it. It stays there forever. And it's a complete mismatch between what we know writing is and should be and what we're actually teaching children to do. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, on the email front, I'm sure we've all been, you know, as teachers, we've all been in that situation where it's, you know, half past nine at night and we're writing yeah. an email to somebody and you know, possibly with a glass of red wine. And then there's somebody on our shoulder, either real or imaginary, saying to us, are you sure you need to go that far? Are you sure you need to be that assertive? And then you close the laptop and you open it the following morning and you go for a little edit. I think the points you make about editing and drafting are really, really important. And from a, from a history teaching perspective, the first time I think that students explicitly are made to think about redrafting and rewriting and editing is when they do coursework at a level um when they'll get generalized feedback and they'll go back and produce possibly 
you know, six, seven, eight different drafts yeah. of it. Um, that's probably, too, that's well, it's definitely too late to really introduce that idea. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's because it's as a patch curriculum and there's so much to get through, especially with the exam specifications. Um, as any GCSE history teacher would tell you, you know, you've got two years to teach what's essentially a two and a half year spec. Um, and so it's very difficult to actually stop and reflect. Um, so we've talked about what a good sentence is. Um, how you talk about making sentences fly, uh, about making things easy to read and actually ensuring that they flow. So what do you mean by that? And how can we teach our pupils um, to make sure that their sentences can flow? I guess really a sentence that flows is one that doesn't have to be reread. It makes logical sense given the sentences before it and the sentence that comes after it. And it's, it's almost like the words are presented in a way where the, the reader's expecting them to be presented in that way. They don't get thrown by it. They don't have to go back and, set and try and work out exactly what you're getting at. That's a sentence that flows. And I suppose that's about avoiding ambiguity, um, which is not always as easy a thing to do as we think. Because if we've got one interpretation of our sentence in our minds when we're writing it, it won't necessarily occur to us there could be another interpretation of the same words. So again, I think that's where you need someone else to... Um, to look at what you've written and to uh, to share it with someone else because we, we all, always need a second um, pair of eyes on these things. But that, uh, like with all of these issues, whether or not it flows, it's almost not a it's not a decision that children particularly are going to be able to make entirely on their own. And when it comes to to editing it, um, children aren't very good at looking at their own work and asking questions like, "Does this flow?" They're not very good at criticising something they've just done. What they are very good at doing is criticising something that either someone else has done or that they did a very long time ago. Um, anyone who's ever found um, poetry they wrote as a teenager uh, in later life in their, you know, in their parents' house will know how mortifying it can be to look back at something you did a long time ago and you think, oh dear, that isn't very good. And actually, children can do that. So one thing we suggest that they could do is look at something they wrote six months ago, 12 months ago. Then they're often likely to be a, a bit better at spotting the, um, spotting the things that could be improved. And I think with, with anything, including a question like, how do you make the sentence flow? They're going to be able to be more self-critical and to see the problems at a slightly greater distance, I think. And I think also when it comes to sort of what the messages you give your class before they start writing and we sort of set them up to fail in some senses because we do have, I think someone's just sitting about a checklist approach that almost encourages these full sentences packed with lots of extra words that they probably don't even need. Because if we're telling them that, I don't know, a simile is the silver bullet to a good piece of writing, then they're going to just start sticking them in and, and because that's what they think is good writing. So it's, it starts with what we tell them as well. And something we've done a lot of work with year five and six is, yes, you know about using adjectives, but now let's just really row back because actually, what's it for? It's quite distracting for your reader that you've put it in there. What's the purpose? Do you even need one? Is there another sort of word you could use instead? So I think there's, yeah, something about what we say in the first place before we set them off writing at all. Thank you. And yeah, Mrs. M has said, um, tweeted is it, us. Yeah. Yeah. Saying that. Yeah. Um, but she has tweeted us, um, editing in primary can be very much an exercise in feature yes. checking, 
the grammar spelling and handwriting rather than doing purpose audits genre. Um, now, a question for you, and going a little bit off script here, is do you think that recent, not recent, um, government decisions over time in, regarding grammar spelling and handwriting have driven that um, in terms of what we're looking for in editing? I think it predates, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've got lots to criticise recent government decisions on, but I think it predates that. I, I think even if you think back to like APP or other sort of toolkits we've had for changing even, even in the days of the NLS. Yeah, I, I think this is a problem in primary education we've grappled with for a while, and it comes from a really honourable place. It comes from wanting to try and break down for children what a piece of writing is, and, and inevitably you end up with some sort of list. So it, it's not, I don't think anyone's done it, and we can argue about what should be on that list, but I think everyone sort of ends up with something that looks a bit like that, some sort of features. They're also easy things to spot. A spelling mistake, you can circle and say that's a spelling mistake. Something that doesn't quite flow very well, it's much more uh, intangible. It's a much harder thing to explain. It's a much, you know, much trickier concept for a child to articulate. So I think it's inevitable that those are the things where they're going to need a bit of help and a bit of support in, in identifying. Thank you. Um, that's sentence crafting. Um, hmm. On a very similar theme, talking now about succinctness, um, you talk about cluttering sentences with adjectives, hmm. and any teacher, primary or secondary, um, will know a student who tries to clutter their sentences with what they like to think are powerful adjectives. Hmm. You say there's no such thing as a powerful adjective. Um, so how do we ensure that our children, and how can we teach our children to declutter their sentences and avoid the clutter in the first place? I think making them aware of it. So I, always, I think I, we used it in the book, and I always use the anecdote of the year five boy I taught a few years ago who wrote the big grey elephant walk through the jungle. And I talked to him about that sentence, and I was like, but you've put big and grey. I was like, but the word elephant, for most people, conjures up an image of a big grey animal. So... We don't need that. That's you know. If there's something else you want to say about the elephant, get that in, or maybe just leave it as the elephant, and we'll focus more on what's going to happen next. And I share that quite often with Year Five and Six pupils because they love that anecdote because they're like, "Oh, I'd never make such a silly mistake." They will, but that's fine. Um, so pointing it out to them is is a huge, huge thing, and sort of taking away the obsession with adjectives. It's, it's I don't know where it's come from, but it seems to be a huge part of a lot of primary schemes of work descriptive writing setting descriptions that seems to have been a real focus over the years i'm not sure why but maybe just yeah taking a step back from that for a bit i actually think this can be a problem sometimes at the uh sort of the more middle class end of um uh our classes with well-meaning tutors i think will sometimes encourage children to write like this mm. and actually they're, they're not necessarily doing um doing them any good that's an interesting point and one um, definitely delve into. And you say there's no such thing as a powerful adjective then. Um, mm. Why not? Well, an adjective can, it could be powerful, um, but uh, the, the adjective powerful is powerful. And there are probably some others that are synonyms of powerful that are, are powerful. Every other adjective is, is whatever it is. So if, if you're trying to say that something's quiet, then your adjective should be quiet. If you're trying to say that something's um, tenuous, then your adjective should be tenuous. The adjective should do a job. The, the, our aim is not to make every sentence powerful. Our aim is to make um, uh, every sentence say what we want that sentence to say. 
So if we're going to use adjectives, the aim is not to be powerful, it's to be precise. It's to choose the actual word that encapsulates the point we are making. A really um, good quick task you could do with any class, actually, is to get them to grab a, probably a fiction book, but it doesn't have to be, nearest one, it doesn't matter which one, turn to page whatever, nine, 20, doesn't matter, and get them to quickly on that page count the number of nouns and count the number of adjectives. And just to really bring home most nouns will not need an adjective, and most that, that should be the case. You should have far more nouns than adjectives in your writing, and they'll find that no matter what page they're on. And that's quite a useful little sort of way to highlight it, but that isn't how writing, or that's not how writers write, essentially. I think part of the issue is that children won't naturally spend that long choosing each noun, and as a result, they need adjectives to add details they could have um, included by choosing a more precise noun. So if you write architect or Dalmatian, you're using nouns that uh, conjure up something very specific. Um, and you then most likely aren't going to need any other adjectives to explain what you're talking about to your reader. So taking that time to use precise nouns and verbs very often eliminates the need for lots of adjectives. What? Yeah, and you mentioned the common errors with adjectives in the book, whether that's adjective pileup, which mm. you talked about, um, stating the um, obvious, um, as you talked about, swallowing thesaurus, which can quite often be quite a middle class thing, um, and also the um, wannabe dick, the upper key station in lower <laughs> where they've moved on from swallowing thesaurus, but they want to make their writing as descriptive as possible. Yeah. Um, and they're actually writing, they're not really writing like a writer, but writing like a year six. Um, what, what, what's the problem with that in terms of those wannabe Dickens um, or writers, as you call them? The problem with that is that it's just not very readable. Um, even Dickens himself, his books can be, let's be honest, a bit of a slog these days. Um, it's not how, no, no one who wrote like Dickens now would get published because it would be dense and it was written at a time when people didn't have photographs and televisions so they needed really intense description to be able to picture what he was talking about um it's not an accessible way to write and don't get me wrong charles dickens was a was a genius i'm not having a pop at charles dickens sounds like you are (laughs) (laughs) but it's not a way that we would encourage people to write in the the modern world unless obviously they were trying to deliberately write write in that style that victorian style for some reason Thank you. And so if we move on now from adjectives um, to nouns and verbs, um, in the book, when you talk about selecting the right nouns and verbs, you talk about, um, as part of why it matters and also how to do it, you talk about precise nouns and you talk about precise verbs. Now, for somebody who's perhaps not a um, primary primary specialist or a key stage two specialist or even a key stage one specialist, um, and maybe a subject teacher at Key Stage 3 and wants to improve their students' writing. What do you mean and what do we mean by precise nouns and precise verbs and how can we really emphasise this in the classroom? I think when it comes to the nouns, I, I guess it comes back to the point I was making before about trying to minimise the number of adjectives you need because you use a word that already encapsulates quite a detailed concept. When it comes to verbs, when we're talking, we often use phrasal verbs. And these are those verbs that they're, they're a very kind of bog standard verb with a preposition on the end that alters its meaning. So 
For example, if you think about the word get, you can get on with someone, you can get up in the morning, you can get out of the house, you can um, get in with someone and become their friend. We, these are kind of the, um, and there's lots of others um, with, you know, kind of other, um, other verbs. You watch how a situation plays out, someone can play up. The, we, um, we add prepositions to very simple uh, verbs, to, and that's how we talk when we're, we're actually talking to other people. That's how conversations go. They don't work as well in writing, and especially if you're trying to have writing that is very clear and concise. What you want to find are those verbs that encapsulate those ideas. So um, rather than saying you're going to get in with someone, you're going to befriend them, you know, you want to f um, find ways to actually um, encapsulate those ideas that we might use phrasal verbs for in our everyday conversation. And obviously that does, that, well, that does come down to a knowledge of vocabulary and making sure that we're, we're giving children exposure to, um, to a wide vocabulary. But more importantly than that, making sure they're selecting the right vocabulary. Zoe, anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think that's exactly right. So precise nouns, they tell the reader exactly what the character's doing. They don't leave any room for ambiguity. And often it also tells them how they're doing it. And there's an example we give in the book, which says um, the mean, unkind person clenched his fist and hit him hard in the face. And that's the sort of sentence a child could write. But actually, if they were being precise with the nouns they chose and precise with the verbs, they might just say the bully punched him. And those two sentences mean the same thing. But one's just far more precise are much more succinct as well. So just sort of a real-life example of, of what Tim was saying. Indeed, thank you very much. Um, so that's nouns and verbs, um, and um, adjectives, um, nouns and verbs. Um, now to move on, I suppose, and look at the ordering of those nouns, adjectives and verbs. And a quote um, which I got from the book, which I tweeted out before the show, was if a sentence has... 11 different words, about almost 40 million possible combinations of words can be arranged. Um, now, we know that not all of those um, word orders are going to be applicable or um, valid, I suppose. Um, but how? what are some of the moves and some of the tips and the tricks that we can use to vary the word order in our sentences? Um, and what are, yeah, what other methods we can use to vary that word order? Um, we're going to have to talk grammar we here. Are, because yeah. um, <laughs> That's fine. Go for go. For it. <laughs> um, the most important thing I think you can teach children is about different types of clause because um, that's, the, that's usually the key to reordering a sentence. Um, and, um, you know, we can put different types of clauses in different places in a sentence. So you can, a, a, a particular type of clause, could be fronted, it could go at the start of the sentence, it could be embedded, so it goes in the middle of the sentence, or it could be a follow-on clause, so it, it comes at the end. Um, and being able to identify what the clauses are in a sentence and um, how they can be rearranged, that does require a bit of unpicking of those grammatical concepts. So it's why we're, we're on in no way proponents of the, the year six grammar test no. as, a, as a sort of policy, but we do think it's quite a good idea that children are taught um, to identify clauses, to identify different types of clauses, and to discuss how they can be re rearranged to create different effects. And I think it's really important these things aren't sold as one is better than the other, or one, I think we all got a bit hooked on the fronted adverbial during lockdown because parents were freaking out about what it meant. But not a single one of these ways is the right way or a better way. What you need to be doing with your class is showing them different ways and discussing. So 
oh, what's the impact if we put that clause in the middle? What, what happens? Okay, so how does it change the sentence if that comes at the end? How does that change the effect on the reader? And those are discussions to be having with your class. These are all options they have. You're trying to give them sort of a toolkit of things they can use, I think, rather than just here's the best way to do it. Talking of clauses and going for ones that you we've mentioned already, the um, uh, infamous fronted adverbial. Um, one of our more famous um, teachers talked radio, Michael Rosen, um, talked about um, in a blog post how he basically misunderstood. He what did he? He, um, he learned three languages, studied old English first course in um, philology, and had read widely. Since he's got a MA and a PhD in literary studies for children, but he got fronted adverbials wrong at the first go. What? Why do you think it's well? Why, why is a fronted adverb, which is that poster boy, um, if you like, uh, basically, um, you know, and you get oh, lots of comment pieces in the Guardian about um, fronted adverbials. Why is it fronted adverbial? No, go for it. Go for it. Well, um. I, the thing is, with fronted adverbials, they're a very simple concept. Instead, on Saturday I played football, that sentence has a fronted adverbial in it. And I don't really understand why everyone's freaking out about the idea that you can teach children to say, on Saturday I played football, as opposed to I played football on Saturday. I don't, what I don't think is anyone saying is that um, it's better to do one rather than the other. I, I think all anyone is trying to say is that children should be taught that you can do either and that they should use a variety. Um, I think there is perhaps a slight problem in that, the fact that we're so consciously looking for that variety in the Key Stage 2 writing assessment framework means that um, children end up doing it sort of artificially and not for any reason other than to show yeah. that they can put their adverbial both at the front and at the uh, end of the sentence. Um, but I, there doesn't seem to me to be any particular problem with teaching. I, I, don't, I don't know what language would be simpler teach children that that language could go at the front, that that adverbial could go at the front of the sentence. I don't know if the objection is that we're calling it an adverbial, I don't know what else we'd call it, or if the objection is that we shouldn't say it's fronted, because it goes at the front of the sentence. Both of those terms seem to me fairly straightforward and innocuous. So, as I say, I'm not a big fan of the, the grammar test, far from it, but I don't really see the problem in teaching children about fronted adverbials. I think it became, when did it first become this big thing? There was a lot of headlines during lockdown. And I think that's because parents were trying to yeah. grapple with primary school grammar in a way they probably hadn't had to prior to that point. And I don't know why. That Maybe it's just the most complicated sounding term, even though it's actually quite a simple concept. Maybe just the name evokes fear. I'm not sure. It's definitely something that's struck a chord with some people, though, hasn't it? And causes a lot of anger for some people. Yeah. Is it one of those where perhaps there are, some people in in the world of education who think that um, you know very explicit teaching of grammar um, and to sort of you know on a minute level has gone too far and actually writing should be about vibes and stuff like that. Um, do you think that the fronted adverbial is just you know the um, you know the, the thing which they just yeah. get out of actually yeah. they're not really they're not really that bothered about the front oh yeah it's yeah. a straw man using it yeah. as a grammar absolutely it's a straw man and it's um it's it's not it's i think basically people not wanting to engage with grammar at all and it's again it comes back to that oh i never learned at school therefore it can't be necessary i think we all have to be humble enough to say that we didn't learn everything we should have learned when we were at school and there are other things that we can teach children now 
that it was beneficial to teach them that we ourselves didn't learn. Everyone knows that when it comes to something that is genuinely new, like coding. No one's ever going to say, oh, why are we teaching children coding? I didn't learn coding when I was in school. We accept with that that it's now a thing that we're able to teach children, and so we should. I don't think, you know, with, with grammar, I think it probably was a mistake that, that we weren't taught it a little, um, in a little bit more detail, because I think it does help us to understand our own language. It shouldn't be taught. Um, we shouldn't spend so much time on it that um, uh, we're not actually teaching children to write, of course. Um, but I think the point you make about some of those people saying writing should be about vibes is probably very true. And I think we have got to be honest that just giving children the chance to write and express themselves on its own isn't going to lead to rapid improvement. You have got to be able to give them some pointers. And if you're going to give them pointers, you've got to have some shared language with which to give them feedback. And I don't know what better shared language there is than the language that already exists to describe our language and to describe the different ways in which sentences can be arranged. I think some of it is just people don't know what it is. I had a discussion, I think Michael Rosen was in on the thread, and someone on Twitter was like, well, we were studying Dickens with my class and there wasn't a frontage of verbal insight. And I was like, well, that's blatantly not true. And I just found any extract, probably from a Christmas carol, took a screenshot. I was like, there's nine on this page alone. Like, it, it, that isn't, it's not true that he didn't use fronted verbials. Obviously, he wouldn't have called it that. And it's also not what makes his writing good. Because that's the mistake we, wanna, we don't want to fall into that trap of thinking by using them. That's what made him a great writer. Of course it's not. It, it's just one of the tools he used. So I think sometimes it just comes from people not actually knowing what it is, to be honest. <laughs> Right, that's the fronted adverbial chat. Um, let's keep it. <laughs> let's keep it. Let's keep it nice and um, controversial, and yeah. let's go to the word said. Oh, <laughs> that's come up. Really now, you say in the book you've known teachers who have told children to never, yes. never to use the word said. Um, I have a particular bugbear about this. I think said's fine, yeah. um, just not every single sentence. Um, but I think it's fine. So, what? Why is this? Why is there particularly in key stage two? Why is there this? aversion to the word said and is it all a bit blown out of proportion i think again i think it comes from a good place i think a lot of teachers what they're actually saying is they want to encourage their pupils to have a really broad vocabulary and there's nothing wrong with that however what if you come back to being succinct and if the aim is to communicate clearly with your reader using words other than said for each sort of line of dialogue ends up being quite a distraction and that, that would be sort of my main argument against it and actually if you read a lot of dialogue in any sort of novel, eventually they may not even be said. It just might be dialogue, dialogue, because once you've started following who's talking when, you don't even need that. So I, th I think that it comes from the right place of wanting to, yeah, expand your people's vocabulary, but it's misguided, I think. Yeah, the, the word said, it usually forms part of what's called the clause of attribution, which says who said it. So, you know, I have arrived, said Bob. Um, and um, what I always say to pupils is, does it matter how he said it? If it does, if it's important that it was said quietly, then by all means, they whispered. If it does matter that it was, um, it was done in a bad-tempered way, by all means, use snaps rather than said. That's great. If it doesn't really matter how it was said, if it's just matter of fact, it's just a bit of kind of throwaway dialogue that's, that's advancing the story, and it's almost just a bit of information for the reader, then by all means, use said. It doesn't matter. Now, uh, while, while you're responding there, I just had a quick Google of um, said synonyms key station two. <laughs> and I've had a few, quite a few, I'll tell you how many, um, 4.9 million results. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple, I won't reveal the names, but one of 
the website um, likes to give away hundreds of glue sticks every turn. Yeah. And the other one <laughs> runs with and the other one runs says and it's got lots of words to replace said and this one on the glue stick website. I mean there's about a <laughs> hundred there's about a hundred different words ending in E D there. Should we be encouraging these words? I just I think a lot of this comes back to um a bit of a these are easier things to teach than actually teaching what improves writing. So you can have endless lessons on this sort of thing, can't you? And you can give out lovely resources and laminate them and, and, and that that feels like a proper tangible thing, whereas actually talking about purpose or audience um feels harder or trying to talk about tone feels like a more difficult thing to do. So I think some of it comes down to because we tried to break down writing into these tiny, manageable, tangible steps. This is where we've ended up, and I mean, I'm not ever going to say ban all the word banks, but again, it just it ends up with some quite odd writing, and I think children do know that when you when you get them to read it back, because they they hear they do hear it, but yeah, I don't think I'd ban them completely. Maybe you would, Tim. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of word banks, to be honest, because I think they do encourage they I don't think they necessarily encourage children to use words correctly or in context, um, but you know, again, I mean, there there are no doubt situations and. I'm sure particularly for some children with um, special educational needs, there are times where they have a purpose. But as a kind of whole class strategy, they're, they're, they're not the way I would prefer to go. Thank you for that. And as ever, if you um, would like to exclaim or lament or screech or roar or stammer or uh, <laughs> inquire or assert your views on the word said um, in the bottom right um, screen, if you're listening live, I Speech bubble. You can um, join Miss Gibbons, and you can join um, Mrs M with your thoughts on the show and on the writing book as well. Especially if you've read it. If you're listening back as a podcast on all good podcast providers, but also, of course, on our website um, ttradio.org/listenback, um, then you can leave your thoughts on the show by tweeting us at ttradioofficial. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Instagram. I believe we're also wow. on Threads, thanks to Nathan Ginn. And we're also on LinkedIn. So lots of places for you to leave your feedback um, to us as well. Um, let's keep on the controversial theme then. We've done fronted adverbials that we've done said. Let's go to the big old standard English debate. Mm, um, there's been, I mean, I mean, to be honest, every couple of months I open Twitter, there's some sort of debate going on about standard english um and i won't name anybody in particular um because it is a contested issue and this whole idea about whether we should be correcting informal language so where do you stand on that um i think there's an important misconception here that standard english is the type of english used by particular people i.e you know people in the south or posh people or whatever and um that's not what standard english means the king doesn't use standard English when he's speaking to people around him. No one does. Standard English means the type of English we use when we're writing in a formal context. And, um, you know, or maybe when we're speaking in a formal context, if we've carefully prepared what we're going to say. Um, and, um, of course, when people are speaking, they speak using local dialect or using um, the slang that's appropriate to the people they're talking to. Everybody does that. But what we also need to teach all children to do is how to use standard English when they're writing something in a formal context. It's not about not about kind of um, uh, denigrating anyone's culture or telling children they should speak differently. No. It's just about giving everyone access to that way of using language 
um, that is what people expect to see when they open a formal document. It's nothing more or less than that. Um, thank you for that. Um, so, yes, um, let you say in the book, using standard English is a useful academic skill, yeah. but it's no better, no more intelligent and no more cultured as a means of communication than any other form of language. The other thing you talk about in um, the chapter on direct speech um, is about accent, tones and voices and different registers. Um, and you talk about how they are perhaps undertaught in primary schools. Um, what do you think that is? Um, well, I think a lot of it is time for every sort of like curriculum time, but also you're sort of trying to get the vast majority of your class to a proficient standard. So sort of things like tone and active and passive and different voices are almost a luxury to teach. They're a privilege of once you've got them to that point, where could you take them next? And I think it's very hard to move on to that if you've still got children who are trying to get the basics and the basics need to come first. So I think it's 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 not teacher's fault or anything like that. It's a mix of the fact you've got a wide range of abilities and needs in your class and, yeah, limited curriculum time. Thank you for that. I'm now going to give Zoe and Tim a quick two-minute break um, to top up their water or having a Kit Kat or whatever it may be. Um, and tell you about what we've got lined up for the rest of the week on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, tomorrow, same time as today, 7.30pm, um, we're going to be joined by um, Brent Poland, ever an uncontroversial character, and his sidekick, Adam Spence, um, and they're going to be hosting our Education Tonight show. Where they're going to debate um, some of the key issues that have stood out in education over the last week or so. Um, at 9pm on Thursday, we have Paul Hazard, um, who is an absolutely fantastic host. Don't miss out on him. Live on the Podbean app and also on the website ttradio.org forward slash listen hyphen live. Um, on Sunday, then, I am um, at back um, with Nathan Ginn and Co. We're going to be on the weekly review at 10 a.m., reviewing the week in education. And at 8 p.m., Christopher Vowles um, is going to be back and he's going to be talking on the 30th of July, 8 about English teaching in Australia. That's going to be a um, really fascinating and interesting show. We also, on Saturday the 29th, we have Graham Stanley. He's going to be on at 5pm and he'll be broadcasting live from Mexico City as he always does on a Saturday. Uh, so yeah, we've got a really fantastic set of shows lined up for you for the rest of the week. So do make sure you tune in and talk it out on Teachers Talk Radio. Back to Zoe and Tim then. Um, we've, done, we've done the big three controversies. We have, yeah. We've done um, fronted adverbials, we've done said, and we've done standard English. Um, so let's talk about sentence length. Um, you give a really good example in the book about how short sentences don't necessarily speed things up mm. and long sentences don't necessarily slow things down. And actually, you talk about hills and valleys. And I found, that if it, I hadn't come across this before, um, this idea of hills and valleys when we're talking about short and long sentences. So what do you mean by that? And um, why is it an interesting approach? And why is it a potentially useful approach to take when we think about sentence length? So we had a good old think about sentence length when we were writing the book, because we kind of felt a lot of slightly bogus things uh, are often said about it. We realised some people will tell you short sentences speed up the pace of your writing and long sentences slow it down. And some people will tell you the um, the reverse. Um, and as an example we use, 
um, about how the exact same event um, can be described. And in one instance, uh, we say the waves crashed, the boat cast off, all splashed into the water, orders were shouted. Before long, though, the chaos of the harbour front was behind us, and we sailed serenely out into the calm blue sea. So in that example, it seems like um, the longer sentence at the end slows everything down. Um, and you think, there we go, case closed. Um, longer sentences slow our writing down. The shorter sentences make it seem more frantic. But then if you rewrite it like this, waves crashed against the harbour front as the boat cast off, all splashing into the water and shouting orders. Then they were off. The harbour was behind them. They sailed out into the sea. It was calm and blue. You realise that in that situation, the opposite is happening. The longer sentence start is feels frantic and fast-paced. The shorter sentences towards the end uh, feel calmer. And what we realised is it's actually all just about the contrast. It's the fact that you're pinning short sentences to one type of event and long sentences to another type of event. And you can actually do this with anything. So we talk in the book about how you can have, you can, um, have an interaction between two characters and you can highlight the fact that one's good and one's wicked by one of describing what one of them does and says using short sentences, describing what the other does and says using long sentences. And the idea of the hills and valleys, you have paragraphs where you create a sense of pace or you create a sense of contrast between two different types of events by slowly building up the um, length of your sentences and then um, tapering off and getting shorter, or by doing the opposite, by starting with um, long sentences, making them shorter and shorter in the middle, and then making them longer again. But there is no right and wrong about this. Exactly what, what you use long and short sentences to, what sort of contrast you use them to highlight is entirely up to you, and how you do it is entirely up to you. The point we're making is just that we need to give children lots of different examples of how they can do this and highlight it so that they can play with the conventions themselves. And understanding that writing is about making choices. And I think something I said to the children I've taught this year is any book you read, every single word there was a deliberate choice. Nothing's there by accident. And just making sure they approach their writing a bit like that. It's a deliberate choice, your word order, your sentence length, or whether you put a short then a long or a long then a short. And here's the effect of doing that. And it's just, an, we talked a lot about the toolkit. It's, it's another tool for them to use in their writing. And the idea of it not being right or wrong is really important because I think sometimes we fall on a way of doing things like this will make your writing good. And that's just something we're trying to avoid, just choices. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Um, on a previous theme, Mrs. M on issue of said has said, I don't think so, um, that there's a big problem with said. Using said allows the speech to stand out or carry the meaning to the reader. Of speech words can add to, highlight, or even contradict spoken words. Too many varied speech words tend to distract, which mm -hmm. I think was a nice little summary of what we were talking yeah. about. Um, anything you want to add, Mrs. M? I think that's absolutely right. I can remember picking up a child's writing, and it's sort of you know, it, it has a really boring, mundane conversation with a really absurdly um, overblown speech verb. So, sort of, are you ready, Mum? Hollered. Yes, I nearly am. I whispered. Um, I, I'll be there um, soon too. Uh, my brother called, inferred, yeah. you know, whatever. And it just, um, all you can see are those speech verbs. It's absolutely right. It's incredibly distracting. And perhaps something we need to talk about a bit more with them is the option of reported speech. I think sometimes 
because there's a lot of grammatical conventions that need to be taught when you're teaching direct speech, and they're very important that they, it's important children do learn that. We spend a lot of time teaching direct speech, but reported speech is a very, very useful tool to teach our children. And that, yeah, that would sort of help with this a lot. And children get locked into huge, sometimes whole pages of direct speech. They don't know how to get out of it. They'll have sorts of, you know, um, do you know the way to the station? Joan asked. Yes, I do, the man replied. You go down the street, yeah. you turn right. <laughs> and the reader doesn't care where the station is. All you need to say is, Joan asked the directions. Joan asked the directions and the passerby told her how to get to the station. So it's about teaching them, again, it's about what matters. What does the reader need? And they don't need the entire dialogue of a conversation like that. No, indeed. And actually, I'll tell you what I was going to come on to next. I was going to come on to direct speech and recorded ah. speech. So, um, great example then on um, at the start of chapter eight of the writing book on page 79, um, where you talk about how pupils can be tempted to lean very heavily on direct speech. Yeah. Um, either part of their story forward. The example you give the railway station once later on, but it says, Do you have the key? New line. Yes, here it is. New line. Okay, open the door. Line. All right, it's open. New line. Great, let's go inside. New line. Oh, it's a bit creepy in here. New line. Shh, listen. Um, so that I think that gives you an indication of basically where we can go wrong with direct speech. And it does seem, there does seem to be a lot of grammatical convention. I know that you do discuss the grammar book as well as the writing book um, with direct speech. But what are the big traps that our pupils fall into when it comes to direct speech? Um, I think often, as Tim said, you can fall into your whole story reading like a script that's just one long conversation. That's definitely something. And I think sometimes children might use it to sort of stall because they don't actually know where they're going next. They end up in these very long, boring conversations of just like, Hi, hi, how are you? Fine. Because they haven't actually got a clear idea of where they're going next, and that fills the page. So I think that's perhaps something they fall into sometimes. And I think the question you need to encourage them to ask themselves is do the exact words used matter? Sometimes they do. Sometimes the way a character says something or the precise wording they use will be important later in the story, or it tells the reader something about the character. But very often, if just a particular piece of information is being given, you just need to say that the piece of information was given. You don't need to actually write out what was said by the character. And that's where reported speech comes in, right? That's it. So much quicker, much easier. And so what, why is it, and I think you've, you, you've covered a lot of this already, but why, why is it that the students go to the direct speech when they could go to reported speech? Is there something as teachers that we could do to emphasise the importance of reported speech? I think there are two things here. So I think, firstly, it's a setting out direct speech is a bit of a, an ordeal to teach, and we spend quite a lot of time doing yeah. it. And I think once children know how to do it, they quite like to show that they know how to do it. So they, you know, put in their inverted commas, they start a new line for a new speaker, and, you know, they, they feel like that's what they're doing. It's sophisticated. They're, they're showing that they're able to do something. But I think there's also just something where they just get trapped in it. They just they don't, they almost don't know how to get out of it. They found themselves in this conversation. And other than getting to the end of the conversation, they, they're not quite sure what to do. And they, it's almost like they're defaulting to it. There are a few things like that when children write stories. Another, another one is this strange convention that you'll find children always want their characters to start and end the story at home. Um, and there are lots of things like this where they just default certain um, certain tropes, certain um, styles that um, that seem to make sense to them, that perhaps feel reassuring, and um, sometimes encouraging them to see that there's a, a range of options out there 
it just it requires exactly that. It re- requires you to um, to show them the range of possibilities at their disposal. Um, and we're going to come on to some of those big, big including the biggest trait of them all um, towards the end of the show in terms of how um, some of our people end their stories, their fiction. Um, we are going to come on to that. I want to go on to literary devices next mm. um, because, my word, there's a lot of them and a lot of these don't sort of come into play really for a lot of students until year 10 and year 11. So everybody here will be aware of what similes and what a metaphor is but we may not be aware of them quite how you know we might have a very fixed definition of these things in our heads and actually it could be more expansive um we'll come back to similes and metaphors um which literary devices then um would you like to see gain more prominence in the primary classroom because there's loads of them do you have any favorites do you have any unsung heroes do you have any ones which one might say is are underrated tell us about your favorite literary device if i'm totally honest there are no literary devices that i'd want to see more <laughs> of the, the yeah, yeah. I, I think it's something we um, we get a bit carried away with and don't get me wrong there are things we should point out i think it, it cannot do any harm to point out pathetic fallacy yeah, to yeah. point out the odd metaphor to point out triplication that if you say something in the same way three times it sounds kind of cool that's fine um but I, I, I don't think that we're not going to make children to good writers by just teaching them loads of literary devices. And it's something that I find really fascinating about every, every sort of primary curriculum I've looked at is the amount of time given to similes and metaphors, like a huge amount of time given to such a niche thing that is interesting, but is by no means a, a sort of hallmark of good writing and isn't a silver bullet. But I think every term children learn about similes and metaphors in primary school. And it, that, that's quite a lot. <laughs> and I think it comes back to what Zoe was saying about the words instead of said, it's easy to teach. So because it's easy to teach, teachers like to teach it. And perhaps almost fall back on it rather than thinking about all the other ways they can teach children to write descriptively. Say. Yeah, I mean, my, my, I, I quite like prophetic powers. And I like, I, as a history teacher, personification. Um, can sometimes yeah. be a key one as well. Um, I'm trying to think, you will know this, and I've for a life gone, um, where, for example, um, Britain is represented by Britannia and sort of a country is represented by a particular person. And it's not a literary device, it's a historical device. And I can't for life remember where it is. And I, I honestly can't, don't know why we've gone in that <laughs> direction. Um, yeah. So I'm going to quickly steer the ship back on course. <laughs> And we're going to talk about, we're going to move away from this very device, given we don't want to see any more of them. And we're going to go to, I think, you've got all of the sort of words and sentences um, and um, thinking about reading. Now, let's actually get on to actually writing it then. Um, we mentioned this earlier in the show about not having enough time to um, draft and edit. Um, but let's talk about planning. Um, because a plan is so, so important when it comes to any form of writing, no matter what um, the purpose is, no matter what the audience is, no matter in a secondary curriculum, what subject it is, planning just makes writing better. So how can we build in genuinely meaningful time to plan writing? I think it's trying to avoid the trap of it having to look in a standard way. So I think we we love a little template, don't we? there are some useful templates, so it can't hurt if you're teaching young children how to write a five-part narrative. 
it wouldn't hurt to start with the Story Mountain, but that's one option. And I think it's accepting that planning looks very different for different people. It even looks different for Tim and I. So I like to sort of make endless notes, particularly on my phone first thing in the morning. Tim likes to draw imaginary worlds and maps if he's planning sort of that sort of thing and think a lot about. Although there are probably reasons I haven't actually written that book yet. I've just uh, made lots of maps. Yeah, no, sure. Um, so I think firstly, accepting that planning will look different for every child in your class and that being okay. It doesn't have to look in a set structure at all. Um, that's a huge thing. And I think also planning with an end point in mind, a clear purpose, clear audience and the end point. So I started doing this with my teaching this year and I was, we did narrative. I was like, I'd like you to write a story about a, um, someone who, a character who realises that jealousy isn't a useful emotion. That's what the character, that was the journey. And so they had the end point in mind. By the end of this story, it was a short story, their character had to learn that jealousy wasn't a helpful, useful emotion. And then they had to go and plan what the journey was going to be. So they had the end point, which helped sort of the steps that came up to it. It's all about the end point. When you plan anything in life, you start with your objective, with your goal. Where are you going? So actually, I think we should almost always teach children, if they're writing a story in particular, the very first thing they should have in their mind is, how does it end? Yes, um, and hopefully it doesn't end with, and they all lived happily well, ever. Yeah. So, or my favourite one, which is, and they woke up. <laughs> and it was all a dream. dream. Yeah. That was my go-to in year four, yeah. I remember it very clear. Um, so I'm going to skip a little bit, and we'll come back to the beginning um, a bit later. Let's go to the ending. So when we think about ending, a story, for example, a piece, a, work, a piece of fiction that our students have written. Um, how can we avoid some of the breaks and avoid some of the sort of a cop-outs and actually use endings to bring credibility to our um, people's writing? Well, the, the bad endings are exactly that. They're cop-outs. And the reason we always joke about um, then we woke up and it was all a dream is, let's be honest, whenever we wrote that in stories as children, I think I did that as well at times when I was in, in primary school, what it actually means is, I can't be asked to think of an ending. That's what the uh, that's what the, that that ending actually means. And the problem is that you didn't think of an ending to start with. So um, it comes back to that that business of making sure you know where you're going the whole way. Because it's only if you know where you're going that you can make it an interesting story. Because then the reader gets to the end and goes, "Oh, so that's why that happened. That's why that character did that." It all makes sense now. We all know from any sort of story, whether it's a book or a TV show or a film. That's what makes us satisfied at the end, is when everything comes together. We see that everything was going somewhere. Um, and that, there's no reason why, on a much simpler level, we can't teach children to do that. Thank you. Um, now, that was the ending. Let's go to the beginnings. Um, you say that we shouldn't really start at the beginning when we're writing. And actually, this is true for me as a history teacher. I tell my A-level students, leave a few lines for your introduction write the main body of your essay and then go back and write the introduction at the end because you'll know where your essay has gone and you can write your introduction based on that. Absolutely. Um, so are there any time when we should start at the beginning when we're writing and when, when should we not start at the beginning? I mean, you absolutely can. It just may, I think part of the problem, and again, I think we mentioned this in the book, is um, the limitations of the children having written down their beginning being like they haven't got the chance to go back and change it and feeling like they're suddenly committed to that because it's there in their it's ex their exercise book and feeling like they're not going to have 
um, any freedom to move away from that. So they absolutely could start with the beginning, but again, as long as they've got their end in mind. So it's there's not even a sort of they should sometimes start later on or they shouldn't. It's just as long as they have their end in mind, it, it won't really matter where they start because they'll know where they're going. Would be what I'd say. Would you? Have you um, I mean, we use the example in the book. Um, I use the. Um, uh, yeah, the opening line of one of my yeah. my favourite um, children's books is um, Mortal Engine by Philip Reeve. The first line is, it was a dark, blustery day in spring, and the city of London was chasing a small mining town across the dried-out bed of the Old North Sea. And what I like about that opening line is that, well, there's two things, actually. Firstly, um, dark and blustery isn't what we associate with spring, so straight away, something's there's a sort of feeling put in the reader's mind that something's wrong. And then we're told about the city of London chasing a small mining town. So we, we've got these ideas that we're familiar with, but they seem to be behaving in a way that's different to how we expect them to behave. So we're immediately intrigued, and we therefore want to find out what's going on here. And makes the reader want to read makes on. Makes the reader want to read on, <laughs> indeed. And isn't that, but the point is, obviously... Philip Reeve, I very much doubt that was the first line of the story he wrote. He wrote that thinking, how do I start this story I've already come up with about cities chasing each other and cities eating other cities, which is what happens in Mortal Engines. And um, the, that's the point. It's, you're, you're deciding how to introduce the thing you've already created. You're not coming up with a line and then coming up with another line. Otherwise, it just becomes like that game of consequences you play as a kid where you know, someone draws the head and passes it to someone else who draws the body and someone else draws the legs. It's completely incoherent. That's not what a story should be like. So we've got your beginning and you've got your end. Let's talk about all of the stuff in the middle then. And let's talk about the avoiding chaos. And I, I you know, I, I, when I, I don't remember when I was at primary school, but I can certainly imagine um, I probably would have written a story or written a piece of non-fiction and I'd have thought really, really hard about how it starts and thought really, really hard about how it ends and maybe it wasn't a dream. And the middle just sort of seems to lose control and it becomes chaotic. It sort of gets in a, it sort of ends up sort of going all over the place. And you talk a lot about um, that cohesion, but also about the discourse mark. Well. Yeah. Now, for those people who well, as soon as you start talking about a discourse marker, we'll suddenly understand what it means, but may not be aware of the, of the phrase discourse marker. What are discourse markers and how can they be used to link things together and create that cohesion? So, yeah, they're just those little words and phrases that make the author feel like, make the reader, sorry, feel like they're reading a coherent text and not just a list of sentences. So, you know, you've got the discourse markers used at the start, like to start to start with, um, to begin with. Um, and, um, you know, this, this is, by the way, as true in um, uh, non-fiction writing as in fiction writing. Um, and, um, you know, then adding to it by saying, you know, furthermore, moreover, in addition. But again, you've got to be a little bit careful with some of these that you don't end up with that gatagon approach like you do with the words instead of said or with the adjectives where children are just using these terms for the sake of it. Obviously, you need to teach them to use them in the right place at the right times where they're going to sound natural. And that's the, um, that's the challenge with those. Um, and it requires practice. They won't do it right straight away. And it's something we do a lot of in, when we're speaking, don't we, rather than writing. And yeah. so what we've done in the writing book is try and find I think, nine examples of 
discourse markers you can use in written English because they're something we use all the time when we're speaking. Thank you. I should point out, of course, that the writing book is published by Bloomsbury. Yes. And you can get it, uh, you can get a copy of the writing book if you don't have one already <laughs> from the Bloomsbury website, bloomsbury.com. Um, I should point out, of course, that um, the ebook um, as a PDF yes. is currently, the website tries to say you have 20%. Um, but if, like me, you'd prefer an actual physical copy of a book in your hand, um, a paperback, um, that is currently 10% off on the Um Got a couple more questions for you then. Um, completely unscripted here. The first one, um, Nathan Ginn, who is in the um, Twitter spaces, Nathan Lesson Copy and I, yeah. we host occasionally a show on Teaching Talk Radio called Starroom 101, where we put the worst things about teaching and education <laughs> in Starroom 101 for our way the key. Um, learning styles are in there, assessing people is in there. Um, in terms of writing, then, and in terms of the things we've talked about for the last hour and a half almost, um, or anything else, I'll give you one thing each to put into Staff Room 101 to do with writing. What are we going to put in there and why? For me, it would be the idea that um, writing is all about teaching children to express themselves. And it sounds like an incredibly sort of um, uh, mean-spirited thing to put in there. But the problem is it's not actually. It's about encouraging children not to be narcissists, encouraging children to think that, no, you're not actually writing for yourself. You're writing for someone else. And that's the most important thing that I think a child can learn about their writing. It's not, it's not just a way for them to express themselves, even if it's of no interest to someone else. You're communicating. Your writing is there to be read. So I think that's saying, oh, we should just teach children to express themselves and be creative. It sounds lovely. It sounds so warm and fuzzy, but you're actually not teaching something kind at all. You're doing completely the opposite. Mine's far less profound. Um, I think I'd like to put wow words in there or the phrase <laughs> wow words. I, I hate that phrase because I think it, it puts far too much power on individual words and feels like that everything can be solved by just including a wow word. It tends to um, get interpreted by children as longer words. So that's when you end up with them going to the source to find the longest possible option for the word they, they want to use. And I think it's led us down a path that ultimately leads to the more addictive, the better in writing. And yeah, just get rid of it. I don't think there'll be too much challenge for those in staff room one on one. I'm now going to see if I can um, just so that we can get it into staff room 101. Let's see if this works. <laughs> <laughs> it has there we go um lovely we have flushed away wow words never to be seen again in a classroom um speaking of which um if you could invite any author dead or alive into your classroom to meet your children and read part of their book to them who would you choose and why oh oh tricky um well, I say I mentioned Philip Reeve. I think he's um, he's someone I think he's a very underrated um, children's author. Um, I, in my own reading, my favourite thing to read myself historical fiction, and he's done something in a book he wrote called um, "Here Lies Arthur," which um, not all of the listeners may have heard of. It's not you know, that well known, but I think it's an absolutely brilliant book, and it does something very unusual, which is it does it's really good historical fiction for children. And what's so good about it? It's about 
set in the time of, you know, the supposed time of King Arthur and Merlin. And it, it kind of describes real events that could have happened. And it sort of describes how they could have got twisted into the Arthurian myth by the powerful people of the time, basically sort of trying to tell self-aggrandizing stories. And I think it's a very, very interesting book about how, how history is made and how misconceptions um, kind of form about what happened in the past, how myths are made. And um, so, yes, yeah, I think Philip Reeve would be my answer. And Zoe? I can't think. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really struggling. Well, this is the worst moment ever. Um, Zoe's never actually read any books. So I don't want to... Uh, don't want to uh, put that bombshell out there. That's just awful, isn't it? It's that thing where, like, you have a literary degree, you, you write lots of books, and then someone asks you about a book, you're like, I don't know any books. I don't. Got, but you've got about four minutes if you... Okay, if, if I think of one, I'll, I'll come up with it. I'll keep thinking. Um, so, yeah. Um, right. So, as we were saying, the writing book is published by Blue Education, available on the website, bluesbook.com. Um, currently got 20% off the ebook and 10% off the paperback edition. We've got some great shows coming up on Teachers Talk Radio tomorrow and across the weekend as well. Shows Graves Stanley, Christopher Vows, who's doing all that um, writing English uh, teaching in Australia. And of course, we've got Education Tonight, um, tomorrow night, um, with Brent Holmes and Adam Spence. And we've got the weekly review on Sunday at 10 a.m. with the Teachers Talk Radio panel and analysing the week in education. Um, any plans for summer holidays? Very intim. Well, we're not writing a book, which is what we did last summer. Yeah. So last summer was mainly spent writing this book. We're not writing anything. Well, we're not. We've both got individual things we're thinking about working on, but we're not writing anything together this summer. So that might be a nice break. Um, Seems to be a fairly quiet one. Bit of work on the house, and uh, you know, sort out some of what we call life admin. Um, yeah, I'm off to Antwerp for a bit um, in a couple of weeks um, with my sister, but yeah, nothing too elaborate. Well, I meant to be off to Crete, but we're keeping a close eye on the situation out there at the moment with all the fires. So we'll see, see what happens. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, that, that's all wow. that we have time for on Teacher Talk Radio tonight. Um, thank you to Zoe in Parable for sharing their insights into writing and their book, The Writing Book, which I have read cover to cover and I can hardly to any teacher, no matter whether you are primary or secondary. It will give you some fantastic insights into the moves that matter and tools of trade when it comes to teaching writing explicitly. It's not just about vibes. It gives you so much more to encourage um, methodical and thoughtful um, writing amongst all the students that we teach, no matter what age they are. Um, some very exciting news from me, which is that I will be coming back on to Teachers Talk Radio regularly um, every other Wednesday starting September. I've got some, I've got a year's worth of shows already lined up, and I just need some guests. And of course, if you want to host on Teachers Talk Radio as well, we will be taking um, applications over the summer. Um, all you have to do is DM us at PT Radio Official, or you just email us at info at ptradio.org and we will send you full details we'll send you the host as well giving you more details on hosting and we're taking adverts from single host or double act well and we've got some great double acts on the team as well we've said goodbye to um, ed finch and cook for now um of course that nice trooper and we are more than well perhaps zoe and tim might be tempted one day <laughs> once, they've ran, once they've run out of other things to do 
cake on the occasion of the show, but um, no pressure there. Um, <laughs> but thank you to Zoe and Tim. It's thank been you. a real pleasure. You're very welcome. Thanks, Tom. Radio. Have a wonderful summer. You too. Um, yes, and um, take care. Yeah. And that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much to Tom Rogers, who's been admining the show tonight. This will be available to listen back to as a podcast um, on all good podcast providers and the website ttradio.org forward slash listen back. So for now, thank you. Good night and take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.